Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Bazayo. Kristen is an Associate Professor of Leadership Studies in the Jepson School of Leadership at the University of Richmond. Kristen completed her undergraduate work in the University of Wisconsin-Madison and her graduate work at Boston University. Kristen's research interests include 16th and 17th century literature, women's literature, comparative literature, drama and performance, directing, acting, rhetoric, and composition, and new media. She's the author of Staging Power and Tudor and Stewart English History Plays, History, Political Thought, and the Redefinition of Sovereignty. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. I just realized that your undergraduate uh, that your undergraduate institution was featured on this uh, was featured on this podcast recently in the uh, Two Truths and a Lie section. So, <laughs> was it uh, now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The University, you uh, know, uh, UW. I think is that what the kids call it? Um, UW. UW is yeah. University of Washington. Oh, very. Uh, gotcha. Oh, that's an important <laughs> distinction. Um, well, <laughs> One of my colleagues you, is an alum there, so it's <laughs> the uh, only reason I know that. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so UW is owed a a very large payout from Apple for a copyright infringement. So. They are. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that's out there in the world. So. <laughs> um, all right, so we'll get started with a with our regular segment, Rapid Fire. So, uh, Kristen, are you ready for uh, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay. All right. What is the best and worst thing about being a historical reenactor? Best and worst. So the best thing is that you learn all sorts of really interesting historical things. Um, and those might be facts or it might be discovering things. Um, in our case, we would find stuff uh, in the archives, like a deed that was signed by Paul Revere or a communion box that had gone to the trenches in World War I and came back. So that was always the fun part, is that there were always exciting surprises that were historically really interesting. The worst part is the tourists. Um, mm. Most people don't think about it, but when you become a tourist, you go somewhere and you no longer know the rules. So normal social behaviors kind of leave your brain, and this means that people do very bizarre things that they wouldn't do at home when they are somewhere else. And some of those things are really irritating. Okay. That's an interesting way to describe that. Do you think so? You think it's primarily based on people not understanding the rules and just sort of being out of the the uh, sort of psychological restrictions of their day to day life. Well, it isn't even that they don't understand the rules. It's just that their brain shuts them off. Um, mm. I have a, a colleague here that actually taught an anthropology class on tourism, and this is sort mm. of a known phenomenon: is that people just stop behaving normally when they leave their familiar space. Hmm. And then you'll even see people think about it where they'll ask you a question or they'll do something and then they look at you as though they realize that what they've just done is strange or weird or dumb. And you see them processing, why, why did I do that? Why did I say that? It's just you're, you're out of your familiar space. So you just suddenly start acting strangely. Hmm. Okay. Uh, that is uh, – all right, so that's really fascinating. That was a that was a, a a more interesting and more serious response than I was expecting. That was great. Um, all right, so uh, what sort of joy can be found from playing competitive sport as an adult? I would say the same joy that you experience when you're a kid. Um, I'm of the personal opinion that adults don't play enough in American society, and 
it's really just fun to let go and do something else just for the sake of doing it. Mm. All right, great. Uh, our next rapid-fire question, what is the all-time best video game? I can't answer that question. <laughs> um, it depends on what you like. You know, everybody has their favorites. Um, there are a lot of games that made really major strides in one direction or another, whether that was graphics or gameplay or story that make them highly influential and really super important. My favorite series is the Mass Effect series by BioWare, but it probably isn't actually the all-time best. I just want it to be. Mm, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> All right, and to keep rolling with a great list of questions for an all-time interesting person, Kristen, what have you gained from becoming an aerial circus performer? <laughs> so I would say a combination of tenacity, which I probably already had in, in fairly uh, significant amounts, and the sense that things aren't as hard as you think they are. They're hard, um, but there's sort of this little mental refrain that I repeat to myself is that, you know, you can do flying trapeze, you can do this, whatever this happens to be. So it sort of becomes a motivator to be less risk averse, or at least to recognize the risk, try and mitigate the risk, but then choose to do it anyway. Um, so I don't know if you want to call that courage, uh, but being able to take those risks and sort of hang on and stick it out and succeed anyhow. Mm. Okay. All right. And we are going to close rapid fire with a new segment. So uh, it's called the gripes tab. The background here is that a beloved former colleague of mine at GW, Ann Graham, shouts to, shout out to Ann Graham. Uh, Ann used to keep a running Excel tab with things that didn't make any sense to her. And it was a, it was a fun thing that gave a home to, to her arbitrary grievances. So Kristen, are you ready to open our very first gripes tab and tell us about the misuse of the term Old English? Absolutely. This is one of my biggest pet peeves, and my students do it to me every year, usually multiple times a year, um, at least until they get out of my class and then they stop doing it. So very often people will use the term Old English in reference to Shakespeare. I'm a Shakespeare professor. I teach Shakespeare in my classes. I talk about Shakespeare all the time. Shakespeare is not Old English. Old English is a completely different language. Um, the letters don't all look the same. There's a letter called a thorn that looks kind of like a crooked D that doesn't sound like a D at all. Um, there are other letters that don't belong in modern English as we read it, and it certainly didn't sound anything like what we speak, and it didn't sound anything like Shakespeare. If you read Shakespeare, you can understand the words for the most part. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or by opposing end them. I mean, those words make sense. You maybe have to parse the meaning, but the words make sense. Old English does not sound like that. Old English does not look like that. I can't speak Old English. Um, <laughs> I can speak Middle English, and it doesn't sound anything like that. <laughs> okay, great. So we're gonna close so we're gonna close the gripes tab for today. Thanks to thanks to Kristen for for getting us going on our first gripes tab. Our next segment is Higher Ed Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm gonna provide two true stories from Higher Ed current events and one lie and Kristen's gonna have to parse out the lie. The team this time is tech advances. Kristen, are you ready for your three options? 
Sure. Okay, great. So uh, <clears throat> the first option is the University of Texas at Austin recently put online the Stampede 2, which is a $30 million supercomputer that ranks as the world's 12th fastest. It can produce eight quadrillion mathematical equations per second, and it replaces the Stampede, which is aptly named, uh, used twice the power, was half as fast, and took up twice as much physical space as the Stampede 2. So that's your first option. Okay. A supercomputer at UT Austin. The next option is a, an increasing number of colleges and universities are fielding competitive esports teams. Many institutions are offering scholarships with an average award of $7,600 in 2016-2017. So that's another option, esports scholarships. Okay. And then the last option is that Ohio University recently started selling branded banjos in the university bookstore. The banjos are pre-programmed to play the university anthem, but can also be played like normal instruments. So those are your three options. I'm going to go with number three because it should be either the Ohio State University or University of Ohio. Mm. Well, you have, you have uh, parsed out a mistake on my part. I thought it was Ohio University. Mm. <laughs> okay, well, yep, yep, that is, or, yeah, that or is correct. Or University of Ohio, Miami. Mm, yeah. I should have Googled. I was thinking about it, and then I could have sworn. <laughs> anyway, nobody, Indiana University is like the only school that is like that. I should, I should have trusted my instincts. Well, they're all in the Big Ten, and I went to UW. Mm, yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah, so that's true. Stampede 2 is online. Uh, people are very excited about it for processing their genome sequencing. And, uh, and eSports is a growing thing. Some schools are really trying to, trying to get into that market. Uh, and as far as I know, there are no branded banjos at the University of Ohio uh, <laughs> bookstore. So. Well, All I right. knew number two was true, so I got a 50-50 oh. shot. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. No, after I had already picked these out, and then after we talked for the first time, I was like, oh, I feel like Kristen's going to have a little bit better lead on this <laughs> than I would have. A little bit of an edge. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, our next segment is called Getting to Know Kristen. So this is just to help listeners understand you as a person and a professional. So, uh, Kristen, how did you get connected to leadership work? Uh, not in the normal way. Um, <laughs> so one of the interesting things about Jepson is we don't hire people who are coming from a leadership studies background. Um, mm. And so when I was on the job hunt uh, straight out of graduate school. I was looking across multiple different fields. I was looking at new media jobs. I was looking at literature jobs. I was looking at writing jobs. And I was looking at jobs that are just sort of listed under generalist. And the position here at, at the Jepson School was listed under generalist. And I looked at it, and it seemed interesting. I always sort of wanted to teach in a place that wasn't going to require me to teach in a Britlet survey one for the entire rest of my career mm, mm -hmm. uh, to do something a little bit different, to kind of branch out a little bit more, to have a little more flexibility. And so that was attractive and interesting to me. So I applied. And then when they uh, extended an offer to come and do an interview, I suddenly had to figure out what leadership studies was. And what I realized in the process of sort of doing quick research into it was that I was already doing leadership studies, and I didn't know that that's what it was called. Uh, so I was looking at a philosophical history of how people, 
specifically in early modern England, conceptualized kingship or sovereignty or leadership. I just didn't have that terminology. And so the idea that I could leverage something I was already doing into an opportunity to work outside of a very conventional pigeonhole was really attractive to me. Mm. Okay. So what, uh, what made you transition from teaching primarily about literature to focusing a lot of time on leadership? I mean, obviously this position, but, um, you know, sort of what was involved in, you know, what was involved in sort of this process of learning about, uh, of learning about leadership in, a, you know, in, in that sort of way for you? What's interesting is that I haven't stopped teaching literature. I still primarily teach literature. I just teach it with a leadership focus. So my upper-level elective class that I teach is called Leadership on Stage and Screen. It's a theater and film class. It is almost entirely a literature class. It's just the way it's constructed is to look at questions of leadership, themes of leadership, the way that leaders and leadership are presented, both positive and negative, and everywhere in between. And the way I structure my other classes is still pretty much a literature class or a writing class. Um, It's just focused around the things that will be most useful to someone who's studying leadership, uh, whether that means that they're interested in becoming a leader or they're interested in a leadership position through business, or it just means that they're interested in those things that are facing leaders, so questions of policy or social justice. But I still teach literature. Okay, great. All right, so uh, my last question here uh, in this segment is, uh, what should people be reading right now to fully engage in leadership work? What are you reading that you're excited about? What do you think folks should be reading? Anything. <laughs> uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's my English PhD talking, but anything will work for this. You know, I read everything from Shakespeare to The Hunger Games to Harry Potter to you know, science fiction to historical fiction, and leadership is in everything. It's not what you're reading, it's how you're reading. And whether you're primarily interested in nonfiction or fiction doesn't matter either because anything that is nonfiction, so if you're reading science or you're reading history or you're reading psychology, all of those things are also relevant to to leaders and leadership. So it's about how you read. What's in your mind as you're reading? How do you interpret what's in front of you? How do you apply it? All righty. Um, so we're going to transition to our last segment here, which is six big leadership questions. So I hope that we'll be able to co- cover a couple of different topics here, but I thought we could start with the Jepson School of Leadership. So we've talked about, uh, we've talked a little bit about your, your experience starting there, um, but could you sort of provide a summary of the mission of Jepson? I want to make sure that, you know, that everyone is aware of this, like, incredibly unique and interesting, uh, interesting institution within the field of leadership. Sure. So the mission of the Jepson School is to use the liberal arts and liberal arts education to teach ethical social engagement um, with the world. So we have faculty across multiple disciplines, uh, social science faculty, humanities faculty, uh, faculty who themselves crisscross both the social sciences and the humanities. We have historians, we have psychologists, we have ethicists people who are interested in these questions of 
what is ethical, what makes an ethical leader, what is an ethical decision, how do we engage with the world in a way that is responsible, how do we determine what is correct, what is right, what is just, and then how do we help people to make that happen, whether it's as a leader or as part of a grassroots movement or through servant leadership, it's all about using what we have and using all of what we have, hence the liberal arts, to engage in those things. Okay, great. Um, how about, I, I'm curious about the, uh, the function of Jepson on, uh, on the University of Richmond's campus. Um, so how does, you know, how do folks interact with, uh, how do folks interact with the school and, you know, how does, you know, how does one teach primarily about leadership, but also be in a, uh, uh, teach primarily about literature, but also be in a, but also be in a, a leadership focused school? So University of Richmond has five schools. We have a more conventional arts and sciences, where you'll have all of your sort of typical liberal arts college classes. We have a school of business that's both undergraduate and graduate. We have a law school, which is graduate, although they have a couple of undergrad pre-law classes. We have a School of Professional and Continuing Studies, which is sort of geared towards education or towards adult learners or continuing education. And then we have the Jepson School. Uh, so the Jepson School is an undergrad degree-granting institution. So our students graduate with Bachelor of Arts in Leadership Studies. Uh, it's not a concentration. It's not a certificate. It is actually a degree in leadership studies, which is one of the things that makes us a little bit different. But it also means that we're not just housed in another school. So we aren't under the umbrella of business. We aren't under the umbrella of arts and science. We're on our own, which gives us a lot more freedom to control and experiment with our curriculum in interesting and sort of unique ways. But we do still follow the same kind of liberal arts model that is such a huge part of the arts and science. Um, we try and cross over multiple avenues to work across the humanities, to work across the social sciences. We're piloting right now a science scholars leadership program where we don't have faculty who do the hard sciences in Jepson yet. Um, but we are working with the hard sciences, so physics, biology, chemistry, geology, uh, to promote sort of double majoring across their students or majoring and minoring where they work both in the hard sciences and in leadership studies to bring those together. And so it's, it's really about trying to unite our students' different interests uh, and trying to work across schools in the same way that we work across disciplines. Okay. Um, so I wondered, uh, what do you think is unique about, about uh, Jepson's culture in sort of the, the scope of higher education? So my dissertation advisor, when I first got this position, looked at me and said, you have managed to find an entire department of black sheep. <laughs> and that's a fairly accurate description of the way that, that Jepson kind of functions. We're here because none of us are happy with the way conventional departments work within the world. And it isn't mm -hmm. about that our disciplines are being done wrong, because obviously for many of us there are centuries of scholarship that's 
leading into those disciplines being done. So the disciplines aren't wrong or bad, but academia tends to create silos. It tends to be very mm -hmm. insular. And so people working, let's say, in literature, because that's what I'm most familiar with, tend to stay within their field. They don't tend to do a lot of branching, whether in terms of research or in terms of pedagogy or in terms of just what they do with their lives. They stay in the English department. And we, had, we would joke when I was in graduate school that you know, we were right next door to the history department, but we didn't ever go into the history department. Like, mm -hmm. I never walked through the doors of the history department, despite the fact that it was 15 feet down the street. Um, from the door of the English department, where Jepson is composed of people who are actively interested in crossing those boundaries. They want to talk to people who do other things. They want to look at what they're doing in different ways. They want to draw from the practices of those other disciplines, from the research methods, from the ideas. But they also want to make what they're doing be meaningful in the world. Which means that when we engage our students in whatever our topics are, we make it relevant to their lives outside of the classroom. So I do a project with my Leadership on Stage and Screen students where my students go to after-school programs throughout the city of Richmond working with at-risk junior high and high school students mostly, and they direct a Shakespeare play working with those kids. And in the process, they will write for me an analysis of the play, an analysis of the leadership dynamics, uh, both of them to their students, of their students to the partner site, of themselves to the partner site, and everything in between. Looking at how they can use the material, whatever play it happens to be, in order to teach their students about being engaged, about being leaders within that group maybe, um, where the students help each other with the lines or they help each other with the acting, or how that makes them sort of better able to think about relating to other people outside of that group. And so I'm giving them literature, but I'm giving them literature and then giving them a context and saying, you can make this work for you. You can make this help you engage in leadership practice. You can make it help you think about issues of leadership. Um, and those kinds of projects are really common among the faculty. We're all really interested in making what we do matter in that kind of ethical, social engagement kind of way. Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the, to sort of uh, take a a pretty logical step away from there, thinking about uh, you know thinking about the lens and the content. Um, I want to talk about the role of the humanities and leadership study. I know that that's incredibly important to you personally, and and really important to the philosophy of Jepson. So, um, and we've talked a lot with folks from an education and and from education and business perspectives on the podcast in the past. Um, and we haven't talked sort of explicitly about what sort of value, uh, what sort of value content and the lens of humanity can bring. So I wondered if you, you know if you could if you could share your perspective on what value the study of of the humanities brings to the broader concept of leadership. I think of the humanities in a lot of ways as being a type of social history. So whether you're talking about actual 
history as a historian would practice it, you're often getting social history. What happened? Why did it happen? Why did these people do this? Why did those people do that? Or whether you're looking at the more arts-oriented type of humanities, whether that's theater or literature or film or even the fine arts, if you want to go uh, extend the humanities to cover the fine arts. That's also a type of social history, especially if you're looking backwards. You know, the things that we read, the things that we um, watch, if you're talking about television or film, the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis all reflect what our values are or what we want them to be or what we wish they weren't in some cases. Um, in the case of Shakespeare, if you look at Shakespeare's play Richard III, Richard is a horrible, horrible, horrible human being and Shakespeare pretty clearly is saying, hey, we shouldn't let this happen. This, this tyranny, this oppression, this is a bad thing, and here are the consequences of allowing someone that kind of unlimited power. So even though it's, it's not real, those kind of works of fiction can provide us with arguments about policy. They can provide us with arguments about ethics. They can help us to rethink something that is going on in the world by looking at it from a slightly different angle. History can do the same thing. And there's a lot of discussion going on right now about what does it mean to have Confederate statues in cities around the country? What does it mean if we take them down? Does that mean we're erasing history? Does that mean we're changing how we interpret history? Those are big questions that are relevant to public policy. They're relevant to questions of social engagement. They're relevant to the decisions that leaders have to make. And the humanities can help us think about those decisions in different ways, in ways that simply conducting a survey of, well, do people think they should come down or not, isn't necessarily going to get all the angles. Okay, so I wondered if you could maybe provide an example. I think that, uh, I think that, that folks who are student leadership practitioners who are primarily operating in the, in the co-curricular space, um, you know, are, are, certainly, uh, are certainly interested in bringing and bringing an interdisciplinary approach that may include a perspective or may include content uh, from the humanities uh, into, you know, into facilitation of, say, a one-hour co-curricular leadership program or a day-long or a multi-day retreat. And I just wondered if you could sort of provide an example of how you, you know, you would sort of suggest incorporating a humanity humanities ideas into, you know, a leadership facilitation in this way, maybe something similar to, to what you would do, you know, to what you would do in a curricular setting. So there's all sorts of ways to do it, and some are more simple than others. Um, you can ask people even for who is a figure, um, whether that is a historical figure, a contemporary figure, a fictional figure, whose leadership you want to emulate, and then talk about why and give examples. So no one would actually answer this way, but let's say President Snow from The Hunger Games might be an example of someone that you wouldn't want to be. And that's drawing on pop culture. It's drawing on mm -hmm. what will presumably be called literature when we get over the fact that it's pop culture. And mm -hmm. people are able to then use that and say, okay, here's why. These are the decisions he made in the movie or in the book, depending on which form. And these are the things that I think were wrong with that. Or maybe they look at Katniss also from The Hunger Games and say, I wish I could be like her because she does these things. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you can do the same thing with historical figures where history is providing that example. You can ask, you know, the very stereotypical question of what historical figure would you want to have drinks with and why? Mm-hmm. So what is it about that person that's interesting to you? People always assume that I will answer Shakespeare. I won't. Um, I want to have drinks with Christopher Marlowe. Same time period, much more interesting gentleman. He was a spy. He was a playwright. And he got in continuous trouble for saying exactly what he thought. So that tells you something about yourself when you answer those questions. And it tells you something about what it is that you value and why. And so the humanities become a very good way for people to start thinking about those whys in a way that simply answering you know, a lot of times we see surveys on is so-and-so an ethical leader? Well, you answer yes or no, but you're not really thinking about what those reasons are. And if you can take it out of a present context, that often gives people more opportunity to think about it and to digest it and then to have a discussion, which works especially well with fictional characters because no one's invested in upholding a real person's reputation. Mm. Yeah, a little less awkward, I would imagine. Okay, so for our last question here uh, in our set of six big leadership questions, uh, I know you study new media with a particular focus on video games. So how does this passion intersect with, uh, with you know, you, your uh, work in literature and leadership? So unsurprisingly, come back to literature in the same way that literature does, um, or film, or television, or pop culture in general. Now, there are different ways to study video games. I study them from a narrative perspective. So what are the stories that they're telling me? What are the visuals that they're presenting me? So it's still very much a humanities-based method that I use when I study video games. I'm going to look at things like uh, game mechanics. So what are you doing literally in the game? Is this a shooter, in which case you're shooting things? Or is it a puzzle game, in which case you're moving blocks to create a maze, or you're doing something else? And so those things are relevant in a way that you wouldn't get those in a novel. But you're doing the same kind of skills. So you're looking at the game and you're interpreting it relative to its context. For instance, uh, the game I mentioned earlier, my favorite game, Mass Effect, is set in the future. It's about space exploration. And there are lots of different cultures represented, alien cultures, in this game. And so you're given choices as the player of who to talk to, whether to be friendly or not, whether to attack or not in some cases. And all of those things have game consequences. And so if I'm going to interpret that, I'm going to look at it and say, okay, what is the game trying to get me to do by rewarding me or not rewarding me? And in this case, it wants me most of the time to engage in diplomacy. It wants me to help the people on my team, uh, so help my followers, as it were. And so it's actually walking you through a process of becoming a leader over the course of the game by showing you that if your followers are happy, they're going to provide you with more support by showing you that if you engage in diplomacy first, you are less likely to have to shoot people because, of course, it's a video game, so they're shooting of people. All of those kinds of things are teaching you lessons about what kind of leadership that game's creators think is good leadership. You can agree or disagree with that, 
But that's the interpretive process, and that's where it comes in sort of under that umbrella of I'm interpreting the story and the way that it's being laid out for me, same way you would in a novel or a play. Great, great. All right, so thanks everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program Challenge Community. And thanks to Dr. Christian Bazayo. I think you're the only person in the world who could give us real insight and, and thoughts on historical reenactment, competitive <laughs> sports, video games, and most especially uh, being an aerialist. So, uh, and, and opening up the gripe tab for us on Old English. So thanks so much for, for being on. You can get more information about the KC and our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash lead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to nastleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you.